Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Oh, okay. Oh, no, the 50 well, they're commuting. All right, okay, go on. Really, and you really got, you got... Oh, massive amount of abuse, yeah. I tapped one of them on the shoulder. She said, don't touch me! Don't touch me! It's, it's not like... Oh, yeah. Don't touch me, she you can't touch me! She didn't call you a pedo, did she? No, like, on, no, that, that bit on in, depi- in between <laughs> us where <laughs> they do that. Did she do it? I just made my point. I said, girls, this woman has asked you to move because this is dangerous and stupid, and I think you're going to have to do it. Like it's, you know, <laughs> of course, you've got everyone's rooting for me, but of course, no one's going to chip in and join. No one's supporting. Of course, no one's going to. But they're all, yeah, the old newspapers are up and the old the iPods are screwed in the entire. It was very funny. So I'm a bit. You know, I've, had a, I've had a lively start. I think you're very brave to do that. I was on the oh, tube. I was, too, I I was on the tube the other um, the other day, and there was a guy with uh, headphones in with with an iPod in, and it, very loud. I mean, it was so loud, almost to the extent that you know, with an iTouch or an iPhone, it's actually got a speaker. You know, so you can hear it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so I thought, this it's not plugged in properly, and we're hearing the speaker. And and this guy, and somebody else said to this bloke, excuse me, would you mind? And the guy took the headphones out. He said, would you mind turning that down? And the guy said, it's not my problem. <laughs> and put it back in. Now, sorry, I did his accent wrong, because this guy, the curious thing was, the person politely asking him to stop was English, and the person rudely refusing was Italian. Which is not how your normal kind of liberal stereotypes of you know how how life in London goes. You no, know, it's not run no. at all. Yeah, I, but I couldn't believe that this guy was asked, and then thought he said, "It's not my problem." What an incredibly myopic point of view yeah, that is. <laughs> oh, there's another one which is which is somehow what I'm doing is creating um, you know a, a, a positive situation. Which is I remember telling some horrible little geek off for just throwing a load of litter on the line. And, and he said, that's all right, someone's going to get paid to pick it up. I'm like a job creation scheme. <laughs> At which point I'm very nearly, the old nose very nearly got punched. Oh, all day yesterday, BBC News and all the organs of the media were reporting breathlessly 
that Bob Dylan had his first number one album oh in 40 Are we years. Talk about Bob Dylan? <laughs> no, well, I just think we've got to dispose of this, oh you know. Because it's, it's been presented as if this is a major revolutionary, you know, that the world turned Can upside down. Can I throw down. some cold water on this argument? Go on. And you'll, you'll assist me in this, uh, in this uh, activity. The Pet Shop Boys, who I love dearly, put out an extremely good, really fantastic record about two or three months ago. Just after, in fact, they'd, they'd won a, a massive award on a, a widely publicised uh, BBC programme, The Brits, right? Yeah. Could have had more publicity. I'm going to tell you how many copies that record sold, right? I think it came, I think it's about 15th or 16th in the charts. Right? It sold 11,000 in the first week, right? So the point I'm making... It would have gone higher than that. I uh, don't, do you think it might be higher? Maybe I it was. I would, All I, I know is it sold 11,000. But, but, but uh, nobody has mentioned in any of his correspondence how many copies, and this is the crucial piece of the argument, how many copies you have to sell in 2009, May, to have a number one record. Because Hardly it's any. not the same... As 1974, no, no, oh, or even two years ago. It's just it, all you've got to do is put it out in the in the right week when there's nothing else absolutely huge, and you've got to put it out in Bob Dylan's case. To be fair, you know Bob Dylan fans want the physical item, don't my, they? My theory. Oh, it's is, a very very good that, package. Uh, and it's it's good obvious. Record. It's obvious that the Dylan fans are going to five or six gigs on this tour. They're also buying five or six copies of the album. That's my my take on this. Why would they buy five or six copies of the album? To get it to number one. Oh no, Fraser! That's absolutely <laughs> well. The same people who can that sit through that cacophony and co convince I'm themselves. I'm sorry, I don't know what oh, you believe. Know. What kind of altruism we, we think people are capable Mark, of? Well, sh what look. chivalry and charity, in fact, but it doesn't go that far. There will be different versions of that album, won't there? there? I doubt it's a very, very good package, though. You get a, a, a free DVD of an interview he did, oh, right. and okay. an incredible booklet. I mean, it's really worth having. I'm but I don't think it's worth having six times, Fraser. I think you'll find that is an enormous. Story. So that's uh, that. overestimation of people's interest. So that's that. That's a uh, piece of business, you know, dealt with. Oh, good. We're not going to talk Paul. about anymore, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the, the other thing I wanted to mention, which I don't know if you noticed yesterday, um, did you see that Derek Johnson of the NME had died? No, I didn't. Derek Johnson, and and I think we should say a word about Derek Johnson. You know, who who'd been at the NME from when it was the New Musical Express in the 1950s. Uh, and, you know, friend of the Beatles and actually went and stayed at Graceland with Elvis Presley. You know, these were in the days of yeah, kind of access. But I remember Derek from the mid-70s onwards when he was, he was the news editor of the NME. And this was a time when the NME had been through its, you know, stylistic revolution and was... And was yeah, kind of like an alternative newspaper, really, you know, and it was Nick Kent, Johnny well, yeah. Murray, and uh, Max Bell, and so forth. And it was all about the opinions of the writers and so forth. But Derek came from completely an earlier culture, you know. And Derek used to turn up with a white poplin shirt and, 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 and a tie, you know. Good he, news, rats to tour. Yes. <laughs> and write the news pages. And metal fatigue. Absolutely. <laughs> and there were probably about seven pages of news, uh, you know, which he would dutifully do, and, ma and most of it was tour dates and so forth. Toll over Scotland. <laughs> I think, to be fair, a lot of those things were probably in the melody. <laughs> they were, but I mean, he was in the same Had mode. the wince-worthy uh, headlines. But but the fact is that Derek, you know, did the news. And whenever they used to research any of these weekly papers, audience researched them, what do you like most? Do you like the opinions of the reviewers? Do you like, you know, the fantastic cover feature where so-and-so goes on the road with The Clash? 
Or do you like the tour dates? Yeah. They like the like tour, tour dates. Date. The tour yeah, date. but we ran a nine-page piece where Ian Penman worried about his own sexuality. No. 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 They want the tour <laughs> dates. They want the tour dates. Certainly in those days. And uh, and it's difficult to imagine this nowadays, in, you know, in the days of the internet. But I can remember when I worked briefly as a, for a record company, as a, a PR. And, and in those days, if you wanted to get your tour dates out... Okay, we had Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers on tour. And the only way you could draw this thing to the public's attention in any way was get it in the NME. And so you used to have to ring up Derek. Yeah. Early in the week when you might have the dates. Hello, news desk. And, and, and you say, Derek, I think I might have some Modern Lovers tour dates later, later in the week. Fine, okay, we'll bring I would go in on Friday, oh, go in say. and take them in on a bit of paper, okay? You would sit in front of Derek, who's a very nice chap, yeah, he was. and uh, uh, he would take them and look at them and ask you any questions he'd got about them. Then on the Monday, when they do the final news pages, he would type them up, right, and they would put them in the news pages. They would, they would go to press day to Kettering in Northamptonshire uh, and, and you know, finish the paper, pass the pages, and then it would start to print. And... If you were in the West End of London, you could get a copy at Wednesday lunchtime at Oxford Circus Tube Station, or you could get it at certain rail, yeah. railway outlets. But most of the country didn't get it until the Thursday. The reason I'm telling this rather long story is there was a time when a piece of information used to vouchsafe to Derek on a Friday, and it didn't reach the public it in any leak. shape or form for six days. Almost a week. For almost oh, a week. Because, because there was nowhere else to put it. Yeah. I worked on the, the news pages of Enemy. In seventy, what it was, seventy-eight, with Paul Denoyer, right. and uh, and that's exactly what happened. Us people would ring us up and say, "I've got an exclusive." And you think, "Wow, is Phil Lynott sort of you know gone off with a society girl?" And no, it would be it would literally be Ian Dewey and the Blockheads are starting a, a, a national jaunt, <laughs> and you'd get you know, pencils and paper at the ready. But it was quite exciting because you you would you would go you, you were the soul. Do I dare? Tell you had seen you had a Jewish secret. Back up the, road. the notion my that anybody has a secret nowadays is, is preposterous. Yeah. You know, it's like my argument. You know, every day, you know, everybody in this office will get five hundred unsolicited emails from PRs. And here's the bad news. Every single one of them goes straight in the trash unread because they're supposed to be press releases. And there's no point sending out a press release nowadays. You just publish it yourself, don't you? You put it on your own website. And if it's of any interest, it finds its way out into the wider world. You know, the idea idea that you give it to somebody like Derek and Derek kind of sharpens it up and then passes it on to the public is is a completely dated notion, isn't it? You know, So... Uh, Derek Johnson uh, died at the age of 81. So Good fellow. We shall not see his like again. No, um, we talked in the past on this podcast about um, customised gig experiences, haven't we? Yes, we have. About how people might have move. Have we used Fraser and myself and yourself? I don't know if we have yet. Okay, no. go on. Well, I'm Mark Allen, and he's... I'm Fraser Lurie. I'm David Hepworth. Just in case anybody <laughs> wanted to know, in case they were mildly interested. Is anybody new there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, about how artists have to seek new revenue streams in this in this day and age. You're looking at me puzzled, Mark. No, we've talked about this um, in the past. Have we gone? Yeah. And have you? Have you? Have you? <laughs> yes, I had. No, you talking about Richard Thompson. I'm talking about Richard. Yes, no, tell tell everybody about Richard. Well, Lind- if I remember rightly, Richard Thompson, Linda, it's an interesting story because they both simultaneously have um, made it clear that they are available 
um, for work uh, in, in a in a kind of cu- in a customized fashion, um, bespoke. I suppose is probably yes. another word I could yeah, yeah, yeah. probably use here. Linda Thompson, I think, rather sweetly actually, has put this thing up on her website, saying, and it starts with this <laughs> emotional note about. When I was six, whatever, oh, here it is, thank you very much, you just passed it to me. She says, my name is Linda Thompson. When I was 12 years old, a career counsellor visited my class in Scotland and asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. When I told her I wanted to be a folk singer, she told me not to be so stupid. Quite right. Many years later, blah, blah, blah. And she basically says, well, I've you know, made a career out of it, but I'd like to carry on making a career out of it, but it's very, very hard <laughs> to get a record deal. So what she's effectively saying is, if you will come up with $50,000, I'll make you a record. Am I right? That's the gist of it. Well, she's trying to well, raise the 50,000 for loads and loads of different people, isn't she? Yeah. But Lots of small and her ex-husband yeah, uh, has another um, enterprise that he's advertising, which is not, he's not the first person to do this either, actually, which is broadly, I think, in a he- the headline is, for £5,000, was it dollars? So many different dollars, are they? Um, you get to go out for dinner with Richard Thompson. On the lash. You go on the lash with Richard, Richard Thompson, which, to be fair... It would be really, really good fun. I think tea with Richard Thompson is probably more like it. Was he more, more like tea now? Uh, yeah, he's not a, he's not a you party can, animal. You can bring six cans of Cronenberg <laughs> if you like. some he monster munch. But he won't, he'll just have the kid come and with some old grey. But uh, and it's, just, it's just another um, aspect of... Uh, actually, we've had this theory years ago. Do you remember? We talked about it on very, virtually the first podcast we ever did. Dave, must have been, what, 80 podcasts ago or 90? 96. Really we're getting near 100. Mike, what are we going to do on the Oh, uh, we've got a plan. Anyway, we've got a plan. Exciting. We can't tell anybody yet. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember you and I had worked out the kind of maths of this, that, that if you wanted to make £25,000 by playing for two hours in the evening, you know, you could, whatever it would be, you know, you could sell 5,000 tickets for a fiver or 500 tickets for £50 each or 50 tickets for £500 each or five tickets for £5,000 each or simply one ticket to one person... For twenty-five thousand pounds, you come round and, and, and you know perform in their, in their living room. And, and broadly, when we did this, it must have been over a year ago now. Actually, subsequently, in prophetic, David, I don't know. Subsequently, more and more people have actually started to do it, haven't they? And yeah. I don't just mean Van Morrison goes to Abu Dhabi and plays the Abu Dhabi, you know, somebody's twenty-first birthday party, six songs for half a million pounds or whatever. I mean, a lot of that's been going on for a while. But people are producing more and more specific nights out if you're prepared to pay for it for people who really, really feel strongly enough to want to pay. It's It's fascinating. I've got a a strong feeling, looking at this Richard Thompson and this Linda Thompson thing, that I don't think they've got many takers. I don't think they have, but I think it's partly due to the fact that they're not really being inconvenienced by what they're offering. I think you need more time out of them. I think a dinner with Linda Thompson is lovely, but for your buck, you want more than that. You want something truly memorable. And I've got an example of something that is... This is a guy called John Freeze, who's the drummer with Nine Inch Nails and Guns N' Roses and Ween and other people. And he's putting together an album in the same way. And for 75 grand, he'll join your band for a month. A month? And if you don't have a band, he'll become your personal servant for a month. He'll work four days a week, 10 till 5 p.m. Now, that's really putting Doing yourself what? out. Drumming. Whatever you want. He'll be your personal assistant for a, for a month. So he could be your driver, he could be making Absolutely. spaghetti bolognese. Whatever, whatever you want. That's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. And is this guy so well-known? He's, he's skilled. Well, he's, I think he, I Not just he's, a drummer. He's played with well-known bands. Right. He's a session guy. Right, right. So you could... You rent a musician, effectively. Absolutely, Musician yeah. will be your personal servant. He also... He says he'll write, record, and market a five-song EP about you and your life story. See? 
That's more like that, that, really that, That's an obstacle out. for me. Because that's the one bit I don't want. You right. don't want, I don't want a, 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 an EP about my life story being made, <laughs> so, being made okay. available to the general public. Is there anything... Public. Now, here's a question. Is there anything... You know, let's put, a, let's, put a, let's put a sum of money on it, which is significant, but not completely out of court. Right. Okay. £5,000, right? It's a lot of money, but, you know, yep. could somehow, you know, could, could be done. What would you want a musician to do for £5,000? Well, again, this is a complicated equation because it depends on the calibre of musician, you see. But if, if the musician you're after is Eric Clapton, they're probably all you're going to get is he's going to come round um, and may, maybe make some toast, right? <laughs> but if it's cash of the senseless things, then for £5,000, again, personal servant. I mean, I think you, he probably ought to be maybe your, your butler, chauffeur, um, But do you, do you ever... Do you, when, when planning social occasions... Uh, you know, big parties, special birthdays, wedding anniversaries, God knows what. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself entertaining the fantasy that, I wonder if I could get so-and-so to come and play? But you could, and people do. I mean, we, we talked about this in the past. I mean, the whole vogue in America, mentally, it's, it's fairly big, big money. Yeah, that's my point, you see. You're talking about small well, that's scale. That's corporate. You know, we, I don't know, a wedding anniversary or something. I, I sometimes think, sometimes when I'm listening to one of my favourite groups, Orchestra Baobab, who are a Malian Latin group, yeah. I don't, know, I don't know if they even play anymore, but you know, let's say they're on a circuit. You think to yourself, wedding anniversary with orchestra baobab. That'd be fantastic. That would be good. Yeah. That would be good. But and five grand would probably get them. Fairly definitely get them, wouldn't it? Nick Lowe would come. Nick Lowe would come. Nick Lowe, in fact, recently played uh, at a wedding of, of some people I know. And uh, he just played uh, I Knew the Bride when she used to rock and but roll. But he did that as a. Controversially. Must have upset the. Did that as a favour. He did that as a favour yeah. for the people getting married? Not a, not a commercial. No, he offering. probably he probably didn't. You uh, see, that's that's yeah. the thing that has to be that has to be breached, doesn't it? That divide, yeah. you know. You've got to be able. Can you get a professional musician to come along and do what you want within reason? That's the big issue. I, don't, I know Mick Hucknall has a, a lucrative sideline in, in kind of solo piano gigs for Russian oligarchs. Yeah, I weren't sure. That kind of thing. Oh, the, the Russian they're, oligarch they're end of it. a lot of money. Oh, absolutely, yeah. a fortune. Lionel Richie is apparently the master of this, because yeah. he's got the right kind of songs. Just turn up and do it at the piano. But and also, you can see why that's attractive, because um, everyone's... What can go wrong? Yeah. The audience will get, I'm quite sure, what it is they've paid for. Um, no one will ever, if you're feeling self-conscious about it, know that you've done it. It's not going to be in the Daily Mail the next day, saying you played some... You know, 21st birthday party in Virginia Water and some pictures have been leaked and <laughs> put on YouTube. You know what I mean? It's a kind of private thing. It's between you and a large check, isn't it, really? Um, and you can't blame people for doing it. No, no, uh, but I, I still think there's something... I think it comes back to Fraser's point that, that they're looking for additional ways to finance what they already do yeah. rather than looking for new ways to make money yeah. that might involve them in very different things. Um, and it would be interesting to see how that develops. Well, look, at the, look, at the, look at the way Levon Helm does it, which we, I know we've talked about in the past. Levon Helm has those uh, midnight rambles. Yes. And they're quite expensive. I think it's $100 minimum, $200. But you go along and get Levon Helm and his band playing all the songs you want to hear, but you also get a load of barbecue chicken wings, 
You get, in, fact, in fact, I think it's a bit of a pot, pot roast sort of evening where you mention bring a dish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fraser would do very well, actually, as he brought this <laughs> yes. morning into the world. What, what did you bring this oh, morning? It looked like a prune terrine, but it may well be something. It's, it's, a, it's a chocolate red wine and red currant jelly uh, cake. Of course it is. Which we shall feature I'm a picture of. Kate, very rich. Said, I, I said, I don't know what it is, Kate. Is it, is it first course or second? Is, is it from the, is it from the dessert, dessert trolley? Dessert. It is, that's great. Now, talking of prices that acts charge or might charge... I have in my hand, in the words of Neville Chamberlain, a piece of paper. Oh, right, OK. Which is sent to us by a reader, listener, Terence, who sent us this a few weeks ago, and I've been waiting to, uh, to discuss this. He's found some pages from a magazine from 1974 called College Event, oh, which was wonderful. circulated amongst between agents and social sex. Oh, we may have to publish something, a piece about this. And it's, it's got fantastic stuff in here. It's got... It's got a, uh, a piece written to the, um, the Ent Secretary of Brazenose College in 1974 um, from the agent of love, okay? And I'm going to read you parts of this, okay? It's with a certain amount of regret I find it necessary to write to you concerning the appearance of love, in inverted commas, at your college ball on June the 1st last. When the engagement was negotiated, you were sent a typed contract and a rider to this contract, both to which you have signed, and it states on the bottom of the contract the clauses of the rider form an integral part of the whole. However, I hear from love, inverted commas, <laughs> this morning, that they were immensely unhappy with the engagement and with its lack of organisation, which apparently was mainly caused by the drunken stupor which you and your colleagues appeared to be in. <laughs> They've never played for students. <laughs> <laughs> I am quite aware that these events are run for the enjoyment of everyone and that getting drunk seems to, to, at all co Oxford and Cambridge balls to be part of the traditional way. This is rich from a, a West Coast yeah. leading brand of psychedelic jesters, by the way, to be claiming that Brazenose College Oxford have had a, had a tipple. So <laughs> I just, I just, it itemises the things with which they are displeased, okay? One, oh, this is excellent. At least £150 in £5 notes was stolen from their tour manager's briefcase while it was left very briefly unattended in the dressing room. That's which, going too far. For which no key was ever That's not just locks, is it, Fraser? Two. One of the tyres on Love's... <laughs> <the course>. Love's, <laughs> Love's <every> love bus. <laughs> on Love's van was slashed while the it was parked in double. full view of the organiser's box, which was selling tickets and on college grounds. Three, despite the protestations of the group's tour manager, the main plug of the equipment was, on several occasions, pulled out okay. and caused severe damage to the blood. Can I interject? I'm starting to think that there's a different tenor to this conversation. Do you think people were objecting to a very substandard performance by love? Oh, uh, if you slash possible. somebody's tires, steal all their money, and try and unplug them, that's, maybe they weren't on particularly on song that night. That's possible. That's oh, possible. God, maybe they, maybe they had cause to complain. That is incredible. It's a fantastic letter, isn't it? Published in uh, College Event magazine, along with uh, a list of prices of acts who were available for you to book if you were if you oh, were well, a social second love what, you, what, you, what year is it? Seventy four. Seventy June nineteen seventy four. Right, so you could have got the groundhogs for what? Okay, seventy five so quid. Top whack. The Ground Dogs. Go on, are they on there? <laughs> the Ground Dogs are, I think... How much is your Ground Dogs, David? Uh, hang on a second. Come and get your Ground Dogs. Uh, Lovely I've, Ground Dogs. I've just got the first bit of the alphabet. Ground Dogs. 
75 is my top. That's it's all bl- I want. It's with. blank, which probably means it was negotiated. Oh, right. Okay. Most of the, you know, the cheaper groups were... Uh, uh, all right. Uh, 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 okay, I'm going to give Prince Magic Theatre. Blodwin Pig. Oh, Blodwin Pig in 1975. Yeah, Blodwin Pig, 84 pounds. 375 against oh, right. a percentage. What? You see, it's slightly, uh, slightly later. Brewer's Droop. Brewer's Droop. I've seen Brewer's Droop. I've seen Brewer's Droop many times. I've never seen Brewer's Droop. Oh, God, they were fun. They were a rude Cajun group from from the West Country, I think. So, how much, if you wanted to get them for your college hop, Mark? 50 Notes Squire. 75. Okay. 75 to have to do several encores. Brinsley Schwartz. Schwartz. A bit more. Oh, Brinsley Schwartz. A lot more. Oh, they were, they'd had a hit. Oh, God. 275? 400 pounds. Good God. Budgie, which I felt was a bargain. I've seen Budgie. Oh, oh the worst group in you, history. You could have got Budgie for 300. 250. 250 of your English pounds. That's fair. Chicory tip? Same amount. The tip? Well, they would have had a hit. Yeah, 350. Cozy yeah. Powell? 500. Against the percentage. <laughs> By himself? Fairport Convention? 1,000 oh. of your English pounds. Fair enough. I, I suppose so, yeah. Absolutely right. Um, that, like, it's basically three budgies, isn't it, for a Fairport Convention? <laughs> <laughs> I'd pay three budgies for that. What do they still do a gig for a gram? But four chicory tips. <laughs> but I'm going to read just a list of names of acts here. Right, and I want you to close your eyes and tell me when you're smelling patchouli oil. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Because this is... I would have mo- seen all of them, by the way. This is the most perfect no... form of time travel to the mid-70s you yeah. could possibly imagine. You're going to mention the Pink Fairies, aren't you? We're going to start... We just start... I don't think we... No, we haven't got the Pink Fairies. We're slightly earlier, the Fairies. Okay. We're in the Fs, okay? All right. Fumble. I've seen Fumble. Fusion Orchestra. The Fumble played by College Ball in 1974. For, um... 250 pounds? <laughs> <laughs> probably. Not paid for by me. Gallagher and Lyle. Oh, God. Gasworks. Geordie. Georgia Fame of the Blue Flames, Gentle Giant, the Global Village Trucking Company. Oh, I saw many £125. No kidding. Gonzalez, Good Habit. Do you remember Good Habit? dressed up as monks. Dressed up as monks. They they turned into racing cars. They became racing cars. They had a hit with They Shoot Horses, don't they? That's right. Uh, Greenslade, Grand Slam, Grand Funk, but no price, you know, actually put in there. Grimm's, Groundhogs, Griffin. GT Come back to Groundhogs. Go on, how much have we done this one? We I, I said there's, it's a blank, doesn't oh, it's it? Blank. It's you negotiation. Said, yeah, it was, yeah. Griffin, GT Moore, and the reggae guitars. Oh, Do you yeah. remember that? Yeah. Gypsy, Guru Guru, Half Human Band, Harvey Andrews, Hatfield and the North, Hawkwind, Heads Together, Heavy Metal Kids, Henry Cow, Herbie Hancock, Highway, Holy Mackerel, Hall Slips, Hot Springs, Hot Chocolate, Hudson Ford. Hudson Ford. Doesn't that take Big you back? Big sideboards. I think I saw them. So that's... Thank you that very much to Terence for sending us uh, that stuff. And if anybody's got anything, anything similar, actually, because nothing takes you back quite so much as you know old small ads and gig listings, yeah, isn't it? It's, uh, that's the that's the the stuff that really definitely uh, takes you back. The Word, a magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. Um, Fraser, one thing you, I just wanted to mention. I wanted you to mention. You told me the other day some extraordinary news about YouTube. This is the, uh, <laughs> the terrible truth of uh, internet economics. Yes! Which is that uh, YouTube will lose Google half a billion dollars this year. This year, half a billion dollars. How do you explain that to me? It's, it's mainly, there's, there's two costs. There's infrastructure, which is bandwidth and hosting and all that kind of stuff. And then the, the other factor to consider is the fact that they don't get advertising. Yeah. And these are the two things that Google is better at than anyone else, is infrastructure and advertising. And yet... YouTube will lose half a billion dollars this year. Another couple of other figures. 
Facebook spends a million pounds a month on electricity, 500,000 pounds a month on bandwidth, and two million dollars a week on new servers. Are they making any money back? <laughs> they're making money, but they're not making anything like they should be to cover their Are costs. these charities, these they're things? They're operating like charities. Well, it's it's, it's really interesting how the economics move you know, from, from paper, because, oh, you don't have to buy printing presses and all this sort of stuff, you know, because you send the stuff over the, uh, you know, digitally over the airwaves. Well, that has a cost, doesn't yeah, it? absolutely. What was that extraordinary statistic you were telling me about an American N uh, national public radio podcast? Yeah, which is the most popular podcast there is. It costs them $160,000 a year just to get it to you. Just and they're not making anything back. there's no advertising in those books. So what we're involved in now, David, again, is enormous charity and philanthropy, isn't it? I mean, uh, am I right? On a slightly smaller scale. On a slightly smaller scale. scale. Yeah, I'm paying the hosting costs of this. You know. <laughs> it comes out of my personal account, okay? So, so don't anybody feel bad about it for me. But it, it kind of seems that the only business model there is is to build a company that you can sell on to someone else and they'll lose that. Yeah, like well, how many times has that been? Yeah. Oh, loads. It, it's happened loads of times. Gunner Boy last week sent a question in via Twitter, which we answered but not very satisfactorily, yeah. for which I take the blame. Go on. No, well, and he said, what ever happened to bands like Mud and Darts who didn't take themselves seriously? And we said, oh, Mud, oh, well, they're still going. I met a member of Darts the other day, which is not the point that Gunner Boy was making. That's a good question. It's a very good question. That's a, a really interesting it's point. It's a really interesting question. Why do you not come across groups nowadays who don't appear to take themselves now, seriously? Now, let, can I stop you there with, with Gunner Boy's um, um, theory? You've got to break that down, haven't you, to, as far as I can see, to, to groups who were good-time bands and didn't take themselves seriously but had artistic merit which I would include Slade, probably, and I would include probably Happy Mondays recently, and groups who were good-time bands, stroke novelty bands, who had no artistic merit at all. Best example, Bad Manners, right? Bad Manners, um, the, the Piranhas, probably Shawaddy Waddy, um, yep. you know, probably, probably the Glitter Band. Yeah, who was playing at the pub across the road for really? two weeks. I saw the Glitter Band. They're actually really good, the Glitter Band, I thought. But Bad Manners, Bad Manners is one, because Bad Manners were a, a kind of novelty act. Um, they, 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 they were a sort of dance group with like a comedy singer. Yeah. And everything fell away from the notion that you were, you were, you were dealing with a, with a kind of a bit of a crazy night out, fancy dress, uh, balloons in the air. And it is interesting that, that actually, since, that's a really good point for this guy, because since then, I can't really think of any examples of groups who wholeheartedly wanted to be just... You know, just fun. A bit just, of a laugh. Just, just I mean, I'm, when I was a kid, I can remember seeing groups like... I remember going to the Lincoln Festival in 1971 when I was, whatever I was, 15 or something. And I remember seeing um, Wishbone Ash, followed by Joe Cocker and the Grease Band, followed by the Incredible String Band, followed by Shawaddy Waddy. No, Shalinar, sorry. Shalinar, right, yeah, yeah, an American yeah. kind of pastiche doo-wop group yeah, that yeah. are actually quite good. I mean, they were clearly a kind of novelty act. And then the headliners were, I think, the Beach Boys, you know. And nobody worried about the fact that you got this kind of light relief, light entertainment came on in the middle. But I, I, what's the, what is the answer to that? I don't know. Is, that mu is it music press? Is the music press something to do with it? I don't know if it is. Because the music press it's applies their, their rather dour I don't think it is. rigor. Because don't here's, the, here's the point, that if, you, if you're nowadays, if you're invented by a TV programme, like yeah. Girls Aloud, you nonetheless take yourself very seriously. Very seriously. And you sort of expect the public to take you very seriously. And the public do, actually. 
because they kind of buy into the into the heartache of your struggle, don't they? It's seen as somehow being kind of quite noble, isn't it? And if you do uh, fun, it's always done in a terribly ironic kind of way. If you look at a band like Daft Punk, who are kind of fun outwardly looking, it's funny costumes and weird videos and, and everything's up, but it's terribly ironic. Totally yeah. ironic. It's like something like Altern 8 or something yeah. in, in the, in the whatever, in the early 90s. But also, I mean, even groups, I can remember, again, early 90s, groups like Flowered Up, and I can remember being sold strongly the idea that Flowered Up were a kind of slightly cosmic, psychedelic ruin, sort of dressed in, in, in enormous as daffodils or whatever it was, you know. But actually, Flowered Up obviously had a sort of, again, it was ironic, and they stood outside of it. It was, it was a vaguely some kind of a sort of stoned art. Presumably. It wasn't just like Piranhas. Piranhas was, I remember Piranhas very well, because I was the roadie for a group in, in, in Brighton in 1977. We supported the Piranhas all the time. And they had a singer called Boring Bob, Bob, Bob Grover. Grover. Do you remember Boring Bob? He's a trumpet. And they had a hit a bit later on, I think in eighty two or something with Tom Hart, Tom Hart. remember? And but then they were just a kind of novelty kind of scar knockabout group. And they were just there for uh, the good things in life. Wasn't you know? the last example of this that I can certainly the last one I can remember was the Mike Flowers Pops. Right. Doing okay, kind that's of light music. No, that's a good idea. That was a that. novelty one off novelty act, wasn't it? They had a big hit with Wonderwall in nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, probably still around. Probably That's the still other around. thing about Chris. Right. Playing college balls. Yeah. Of course, the other element, now I don't know if this is connected or not, but the enormous success of acts like Tom Jones, Neil Diamond, Shirley Bassey, and so forth at Glastonbury and places of that kind indicates that there's a huge desire on the part of the audience for the very kind of entertainment that isn't normally available to them. You know, yeah, well, a bunch of people in the really muddy field. Well, they want a load of songs that they've they've absorbed, like with mother's milk, almost, don't they? And they, they, they do. But again, going back to my, my theory, which is probably wrong actually about the music press, is that when the music press um, a process, when they analyse the appearance of uh, of performers like that at Glastonbury, they do so within the parameters of of uh, rock criticism that also includes whoever the headliners were, the Neil Youngs, the Bruce Springsteens or the Blurs or whatever. So they're somehow actually tending to take those people seriously. I mean, I've seen all these acts. And, so, I, and so Tom Jones is, is slightly welcomed back into the fold. Most people, rather a good old fellow. But most you know, people who, who, who like people like that at Glastonbury don't read anything about them at all. They just like the idea. They just know... No, all right, that's a good point. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the music press. The music press try to give things... Probably depth, where quite often depth is nice. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Neil Diamond being the classic You're example. Absolutely right. <laughs> I, I had Neil Diamond's uh, press officer on the phone the other day saying, was I doing a, a major feature? When I said that I wasn't even doing a minor feature, they were they affected to be mortified. <laughs> but I, I feel very confident, David, in my, in my decision not to have Neil Diamond in the magazine. Because I know, we all know what Neil Diamond is. We don't need any more of him. The comeback of Neil Diamond w- didn't convince me at all. Those records. Oh, that! You know, where they basically, they, Johnny yeah. Cash uh, turned his toes up, so they'd oh, look yeah, around yeah. for the next kind of American old, icon. American oh, icon. Of they could photograph him black and white and then record him in, you know, raw and uncooked. That's and right, it, it, sort of, it just wasn't very interesting, I didn't think. But, uh, but no. you know, it was, it, was, it was a big success. So, um, you know, I think Gunner Boy's point remains Extremely suspended point. in the air, not necessarily answered. Can Tribute, it, tribute bands. That's yes, ABBA groups. Oh, and, you know, that's very probably good. Yeah. That's very, I never thought of that. That's very good. Absolutely, because that's just pure superficial nonsense. And even it? when they're, they're paying tribute to a serious act, like Pink Floyd, the Australian Pink Floyd have inflatable it's, kangaroos on stage. See, is it, Mark? That's good. Is it? Is it pure superficial nonsense? 
Or is what, it what, just... trivia bands? Yeah. Why are they? What's wrong with trivia rounds? Uh, no, 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 but I mean, uh, you know, you can't take them terribly seriously, can you? It's, I mean, it, it, it's, it, and I, t- I t- took my, my nieces to see, um, to see the bootleg Beatles. Yeah. And their favourite groups in the world, bizarrely, although I'd say good parenting and well brought up, right? I'd like to think their, their uncle was involved in this, actually, is their two favourite groups are the Bonzos and the Beatles. And we went to see the bootleg Beatles, who were absolutely fantastic, the Royal Albert Hall. We then went backstage to the party to meet the bootleg, we were old pals of mine. Who was there? Only four living members of the Bonzo dog Fantastic. I thought they were both going to die so no, and the, go to heaven. With the bootleg yeah. Beatles, they're going to be better than the Beatles ever were. Absolutely. They were far, they're far better. They're, 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 uh, they're far playing far together for longer. Far they're better, better equipment. Yeah. 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 And also play all the songs, of course. You see, Beatles I don't think that I've seen the bootleg Beatles, and they're fantastic. They're no, very yeah. good. And, and, uh, and I'm, there's no bigger Beatles fan than me, uh, but I, I didn't find it superficial nonsense at all. I thought, I'm getting to hear this stuff in a way that I, wouldn't, I, I can no longer get to hear it. You're still one one removed from the real thing, that's the point I'm making. Because it's only like it's only like going to see, you know, Noel Cowd revival at the National Theatre, isn't it? You know, it's an, it's well, an old there's, tune. Some, there's something very old fashioned about this this thing probably invented in fact by the Beatles themselves, about this notion that you're meant to see people performing songs written by themselves. That's what you're meant to see, it's what you expect. And if they're not performing so Paul Young, I remember getting immense amounts of um, uh, of shooing in the press because he didn't appear to write his own material. I'm sure he did, actually. But the majority of the things he did was great old soul song, songs, really, really brilliantly executed, I thought, actually. It was a really yeah, good song. Yeah, yeah. But nobody took him seriously because they'd rather have some absolutely hopeless group uh, from Sheffield who'd written their own material and some brilliant yes, technician yes, covering it's supposed, a, be, a class. it's supposed to be wrenched from your guts, isn't it? it from is. your personal experience. I know. Which is a ludicrous idea. Well, it's gone into everything. I, we, two or three of us at Word went down to the pub the other night. Fraser was about to see... Um, to go and have a drink in Filthy McNasty's Whiskey Cafe. And in the back room, there's a poetry evening. And I stumble into this, in fact, mistakenly, because I'm on the way to the loo. You're on the way to the um, gents. <laughs> you went to do a poetry yeah. evening. Oh, I go to a poetry evening and watched uh, this girl perform poetry. I thought it was really interesting that she had inherited this idea, too, that even though we didn't know her, she could, she could basically deliver a poem about terrible relationships with men. And I'm thinking, I don't know you. Why don't you give me some observational comedy or observational <laughs> tragedy, but something observational rather than just observational about yourself? Is that surely, Dave, part of the same DNA as I'm in a group, therefore I write my own material? Yes, yes, it is. So, are you I'm saying... not expecting her to do cover versions. That'd be quite funny if she went in there and said, I'm, I'm going to do uh, this lime tree bower my prison by Coleridge. <laughs> <Big, yeah, laughs> <laughs> 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 Ten years! Do some old! They do some old! That's That's a lovely idea! Oh, God! So, God! So, on your way to the Jets, on your way to the Jets, I can just see picture you, somebody, somebody's holding the room of four people wrapped with their poetry. And certainly Mark Allen blunders in all his Did you apprehend that. I thought Fudgy were playing. What? What's this? Did it have. Did it have poetic merit, or was it... It had poetic merit. I'm very keen on poetry, I have to no, say. No, no, very no, keen no. on poetry. And I did have poetic merit, and I loved the audience. I loved the fact they were taking it so seriously. Um, I, I don't need to describe them. I'm sure you know exactly what they're like. They're in the late 20s, busy, the early 30s. It was, was it? packed. Dave, I've got to say it was packed. Was Ma- she a Magic name poet? Magic Alex, who's our, our, one of our ad executives on Word magazine, uh, he and his band often play in that back room, and no disrespect to Magic, he puts on a terrific show, I think. It was not nearly as full as when the Bunchy Night performed. So I'm going to work with Magic later and say, could you get a couple of backing singers who occasionally do just a tiny bit of Tennyson? You know, while he's tuning up. That's a good idea. It's a, it's a great idea. That's a good idea. What do you think? Well, um, I've just got to cover one, one bit of any other business. That um, 
Do you remember five years ago, Janet Jackson's wardrobe malfunction oh, at the Super Bowl? I do. Where a bosom dropped out, apparently unplanned, and there was immense publicity for Justin Timberlake and her. And, and um, federal regulators fined CBS 550000 of your American dollars for not properly regulating this broadcast. And this then got quashed in appeal, right? It's now going back to court. But this, my point about this is, five years ago, a woman br- incredibly briefly exposed a breast. Five years later, <laughs> lawyers... Now, who is making money out of this, Mark? Who's making money? Could lawyers. It be lawyers. Could it be lawyers? Can you imagine how much money they're making out of this? Lawyers have never procrastinated in the past. <laughs> They've never willfully extended negotiation. So we'll That's ju- incredible. You know, we'll revisit that in a year's time, and I bet it's still in court. It'd be like, you know, it'd be like Bleak House and John Dice and John Dice. It's Janet Jackson's breast. Will be, you know, whole families of lawyers will be, you know. I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to say, living off the breast, you know, for uh, gathering for, around for many, many years to come. <laughs> now we, we get a slight departure in this podcast. We normally just fade and fade away. We're not going to do that. We're not we? going to do that this time. How because you this keep going. No. Be glad for the song has no end. No end. As the incredible string band well mistakenly once said. This week's is the launch of the first of our Shopcast video podcasts, which Mark and I have done with Universal Music. Oh, and this yeah, one's about the yeah. Kinks, and we did it a little while ago. And we've been we've been uh, going back and forth with it, but anyway, we're we're, we're releasing it this week, so you're able to you're able to entertain yourself and thrall yourself with the sight of Mark and me in our fantastic old record shop that we we built with the, we all the old covers in the background and discussing the kinks but uh, if for any reason if you just want a taste of it or for any reason you don't actually want to look at us and I can you know I have sympathy for you it's a fair point you can actually listen to it right now one of the many things that the kids of today don't understand and they should be listening kids of today is that back in the 1960s the high point of British pop music the BBC could only play about six pop records a day because of a needle. There was agreement. some restriction, wasn't there? That's right. Yeah. And the rest of the time, they used to give over to dance bands and their featured singers. So I'm talking about people like Ross McManus used to sing Elvis Costello's father used to sing with Joe Loss, and used to have to turn up and do their own versions of "Get Off My Cloud." Yeah, or the Stones hit of the day. Or um, and and keep us all enthralled with that. But Joe Loss is on. Oh, Joe Loss. That's how this fantastic box it. set starts. This is a brilliant. It's six CDs. Uh, wonderful booklet by Pete Doggett, riveting actually. And uh, track songs. one, Brian Matthews introduces the king. Yeah, and what he Brian says. Brian Matthews, we salute you. I know it's great. What he says is so, so Brian Matthews. He says, uh, and now five more representatives of the Shaggy the set. Shaggy set. And on come the Kings. You know, with their horrendous and uh, uh, you know traumatizing long hair. And their uh, teeth unfixed. And, and probably unfixed teeth, I don't know. Ghastly thought, really. So, it's, so it's thrilling. I, mean, I, I absolutely love this story. I love the story of the Kings. And I love particularly this, this first record because you are reminded that, that you know, <laughs> the music industry now is so, so, you know, someone puts a record out and you go, it's a little bit arcade fire, it's a little bit motorhead. You've, you've got it in a, in, a, in a slot, you know. But the Kinks come along, and not only does the music industry not know what to make of the Kinks, you know, they were really listening to Big Bill Brunsey and folk pop and, you know, uh, old blues and R&B and stuff. They don't quite know what direction they're going. But, uh, 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 so the industry don't know. And the Kinks 
really have no idea either. They're trying anything they can. They're, they're, they're trying Libra and Stoller songs. They're trying a version of Long, Paul's, uh, Long Tall Sally. They're trying to make their mark, you know. And there's a lovely bit in 1964 where they've just been on uh, Ready Steady Go supporting the Hollies and Dave Clark Five, and they're now out on this package tour. And some local boffin from the, you know, the local paper comes along and gives them a damning review. They're promoting their single, You Still Want Me. And immediately they get this bad review. The management decides to take them off this kind of balanced uh, joint highlight arrangement, put them relegated to the bottom of the bill. So work your way back work, up. You've got to work your way back up. Scottish League Division It's two. exactly like football. They've I lost the match. I think there should be more of that. <laughs> I think groups should, should get <laughs> suddenly <laughs> relegated in <laughs> the middle of the season, you know. No, it's fight like, your way back. Fight your way back. And, uh, and Ray is fighting constantly. I mean, it, there's a bit where they recall, you really got me. And they don't know how to get the, the sound. And Dave Davis has this brilliant idea. He's going to stick a knitting needle into the great vibrating cone. Oh, right, yeah. And by doing this, it's not an accident. He does it deliberately. It, it, it creates a fractured sound, which, which is the great you know, texture of, um, of You Really Got Me. And they really like this. And then Shell tell me there... A producer um, feels that it's not the right version. And, uh, and Ray threatens to take Pi Records to court, aged, what would he have been? God. 1920. 20, something like that. Yeah, and then they make Sunny Afternoon, because want, Ray wants his own particular sound to go out. I know? always get the feeling that with the career of Ray Davis and the Kinks that, that uh, fisticuffs are never too far away. They're never too far away. There's, well, the, the, the classic story about the management, he feels they should have had better management to, to protect them from each other. Does that make any sense? Because but stop them beating each other up. Because, because Dave Davis, Dave Davis famously has this uh, dust-up with Mick Avery on stage. I mean, they've, they've made no secret about this. In fact, they talk about it quite a lot. Uh, what happens eventually is they're in Croydon, I think, is it? And, 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 and Mick Avery gets up, picks up a hi-hat symbol. And this is going to hurt, David. That's going to smart, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Big old swing. Smart. Seriously? Yeah. Pretty much knocks the head of what's, Dave Davis on stage. What's the cartoon and noise the that it makes when a high hat <laughs> connects with? Well, it ends with. And the audience, I suppose, probably in those days, the days of whatever PJ Proby, uh, probably thought it was a stage act. They probably thought this I is what so. they do. Saw this brilliant group last night. They're really good. The Kings. What happens is their little their little trick they do, little trademark, is the guy gets up and smacks this guy over the head with a big load of symbols, not realizing they've seen a unique occurrence. A unique occurrence. Well, it wasn't completely unique because they did the next night. Mick Avery ran away from the show, so terrified that he had literally killed the lead guitarist of the Kings. He ran away and had to eventually be found and returned to the hotel and calmed down. So look, he's still alive. He's not great. He's still alive. The next night, Dave Davis wears a pair of dark glasses to cover up his terrible shyness that he's got, and it all kicks off again. I mean, it's just fantastic. And they felt that, you know, the Beatles and Stones were better managed. They were better, better looked after. One of the things that interests me about the Kinks is that, is that they, were, they come from Forty Screen in Muswell Hill, uh, which is quite near where I live. Near where so you exactly. I, I, Your I hood. The, my hood, or manor. I pass that all the time. And it's only a few doors down... From the house where Fairport Convention That's right. Were, uh, Only a few years started. later. A house that's still called Fairport, yeah. still got the plaque outside of it. And uh, there's a really strong sense of London all the way all the way through this. You know, if you go through song titles, you know, all through this, you know, there's Victoria, there's Waterloo Sunset yeah. and uh, and uh, Muswell Hillbillies, you know. It, it always fascinates me that that that, that um, I always got the feeling that listen to Ray Davis, he's sort of almost going back to a London that is made of mainly of bomb sites and houses with outside laboratories. It is. It's bare and brick walls, cups of tea. And gentlemen, yards. Gentlemen go to work in, in probably 
morning suits. Yeah. You know what I mean? Pinstripe trousers yeah. and, and, and dark jackets. There are probably people on the buses yeah. wearing bowler hats. And there might be people with, you know, ladies with shawls. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And, and they're probably... On the corner, there will be somebody who will still be, still be called a spiff. You know, it's kind of yeah. Dad's Army. It is. London, you know Completely. what I mean? Because the, the well, I think huge a lot of that's... Yeah, a lot of it's to do with this uh, obsession with class, because he was... I mean, you know, it, it wasn't exactly dead-end street that, 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 he, that they were living in, but he was the youungest of a family of eight, which I didn't know, actually, until I read that. I forgot what well, I did. I'd forgotten it. He, Dave Davis was the youngest, and Ray was the seventh child in his family. And so they really had to make their mark to get uh, any attention at all. You know, people, <laughs> and, people don't pay enough attention to this, you know, that, that in studying pop music, yeah. whatever, you know, that, that they do kind of take rock stars on their own estimation, Completely. you know what I mean? Whereas actually, things like birth order, birth how order, big your family was, your parents, and socioeconomic class, circumstances. Class is fascinating. I just important. finished reading uh, Philip Norman's book about John Lennon, and there's a marvellous bit in it where John Lennon, who is lower middle class, very comfy off, very well educated, announced he's formed a group with Paul McCartney, who's a little bit lower down the scale than he is class-wise, he tells his aunt Mimi, who brought him up, that good news, they've got Richard Stark, he's playing the drums. George Harrison's been signed up to play, play guitar. She goes, we didn't give you this decent education <laughs> around with people like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, you just, you can't, you just can't imagine so that, 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 that friction would be in there. So that sort of and stuff the same with Ray. looms large well, Ray, all the way through. Ray Davis is obsessed with class because obviously this is a working class family. This is somebody working their way up. And he is constantly meeting, as all the rock musicians of the time were, you know, members of the slumming aristocracy, kind of uh, on their way down to meet them halfway. And he is just obsessed with this idea of people making money and what they wear and their attitudes, and sees it in a very, very, very kind of formulated way, which is very attractive, actually. And he's both entranced by it and simultaneously setting it up. I tell you, know. one of the key songs here that's on, on the second CD, which is a song that actually... The jam picked up on and did themselves, and, and oh, Paul Jane Weller Jane probably a lot, yeah. of, lot of similar things going on in his life. You know, I wish I could be like David. Exactly. It's the idea. I wish I could be like the head boy. Yeah. Who's kind of better looking, yeah. more accomplished. He's got everything, and he's probably a doctor's son. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Oh, has, yeah. has a slightly more pleasant life yep. than I'm having. You know. Yep. And more to the point, I think girls would find him probably more attractive than they find me because this is a pretty surefire bet. A man yes. with a career. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's so interesting. Uh, the sort of satire, Ray Davis songs, he's, he's, he's standing outside of these records. If you look at, again at the Beatles, even uh, I saw a standing there on Nowhere Man or whatever, they're very simple boy meets girl post Buddy Holly love songs. But he looks at these things. Waterloo Sunset, a really good example. Looking at this world of all these different little scenes going on. So it's other people having fun, it's other not people. me. people. And he is just the, often just the, the spectator. So that's a really uh, good point. at the end. And, and I, I, I cannot get... I'm, I'm listening to these again. The, the quality of the lyric writing is amazing. Do you remember Well-Respected Man? I certainly do. He gets up in the morning and goes to walk at night, work at nine. And you find out this extraordinary information about this this character, who Ray Davis is both slightly admiring of and massively setting up. <laughs> yeah. And then you also find out about this whole other generation. His mother, his mother is stirring tea with councillors while discussing foreign trade, and she's passing bills as well as looks uh, at every suave young man. So she's a little bit, a little bit of a live wire. Yeah, yeah. And I, you cannot believe how much kind of information you're getting out of these, out of these tiny little. I'm going to have to use the word vignettes, Dave. Is that all right? So they took this, this Englishness, and strangely enough, the place where it was kind of most, most attractive was in America, wasn't it? 
Well, I think, yeah, Americans found it... Um, it's exactly the same way as we feel, I think, about American music, that we have a romantic idea yeah, of yeah. the great... So we we like ZZ Top. ZZ Top. Anybody, Neil Young was driving some enormous old sort of, you know, Ford truck down a big endless highway. That, to people who live in Britain, is very attractive. And the reverse was obviously true. A kind of um, Village Green Preservation Society world of little duck ponds and village life. Kind of healing comedy. Probably a cricket pitch. And the sound of, of china cups being clicked together... That was obviously very attractive. But it's so interesting to me, again, reading this, this very, very good um, booklet in, the, in this package, of the story that happened. They'd been banned from the... Uh, there'd been a big problem with the um, American Federation of Musicians in, in, in 65, and they were banned from performing. Didn't get back to America until 69, at which point they're releasing Village Green Preservation Society. Ray, <laughs> Ray invites various pals of his, I think from Melody Maker, to come in and hear this masterpiece. They love it. They publish their reviews saying, this, the kinks have finally done it. This is the great work. Ray then panics, um, brings the record back to the studio, feels he ought to have three more songs on it, attaches three more songs, delays the entire thing. By the time they put it out, November 1968, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones have both also got records out. In the Beatles' case, I suppose it would have been the White Album. Can't think what it would have been for the Stones. Is that Beggar's Banker? I don't know yeah, what it probably was. Something like yeah. That, yeah, so the press are, are having this feeding frenzy of these great records by the Beatles and the Stones, and this record is lost. It's too late, it's missed its chance, the, the, the pre-hype is gone. And they go to America in a terrible state with a failed record trying to reconnect with a continent that hasn't seen them live since 1965, when, of course, they were a kind of garage punk mm, R&B yeah. group, pop group. And now they're back as this immensely theatrical band. And that's another thing I've forgotten about, Ray, is this whole thing about music hall. Um, you know, you were talking about his obsession with London. As a kid, he saw, you know, Max Wall, and he saw all these people, and it really affected this way he wrote. And his songs are little plays. You know, a lot of the songs on these records are little tiny two-act plays uh, compressed into three minutes, 20 seconds. And musical and theatre is a major part of what he's trying to, trying to sell. Do you know what is still the most curious aspect of the whole Kinks saga? The thing that, that you just have to keep reminding yourself how strange this is. Is the hunting coats? Oh yeah, there we go. The, the idea coats. that we've got a group, we've got a group from Muswell Hill, yeah, yeah. kind of young oiks, you know, yeah. duff each other up on stage yeah. and do kind of incendiary R and B. Yeah. What do we need as a what do we need as a as a costume for them? I know, hunting pink, you know, what I mean? you know I think and, and, and kind of ruffled shirts. Yeah. I but think that was their idea. Right. Again, this is alluded to in this, but I think I think that was their idea too. Ray at one point complains, and it's a really good point, he complains that they, nobody could market them. And he says this was a blessing and a curse. Um, most of these groups, there's a very clear way you could put them across. They, they had a very, very singular identity that you could express in their clothes and their packaging. But what, the Kinks were very much in charge of themselves, so I think it was Ray or Dave's idea to dress up in this hunting coat. So they come on stage and they're, with their matching scarlet jackets and their riding boots, and they, which is, they don't know what to do. It, it's confusing. And there was always this kind of, although they were kind of likely lads who had punch-ups, yeah, yeah. They, they always played this rather effete, limp-wristed... Totally. You know, thing. I, this is, I think this really... Is it in Dedicated Fuller of Fashion? Where he... <laughs> he has that line... When he pulls his nylon, nylon frilly pa pants, pants is right up, right up tight. He, he feels, feels dedicated to the right I can't imagine another group, apart from maybe Ian Dury, yeah. 
being sort of tempted to do that kind of yes. thing. It's the kind of thing that would get a laugh in a rough pub. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's, that's a lot of where they come from, actually. It completely, and it, it, it totally sums up the combination of his immense fascination with the, uh, the uh, demi-monde and in the fact that he's constantly taking pot shots at them. You know, dedicated follow fashion is so fantastic because it's about... Doesn't he say at one point that the Carnabetian army... The Carnabetian army marches on? That, he's invented that word. It creates an adjective from Carnaby. Street. The Carnabetian army. It's fantastic. And I can remember as a kid, very young, going up to Carnaby Street to see what it looked like. In Where, where's the headquarters of the Carnabetian army? You were looking for the you know, looking for the barracks of the Carnabetian army. I was. Army. I thought there'd be Sadly, huntsmen they were out of, of, with out rhythm of, guitars. They're out <laughs> the of manoeuvres there. And another thing uh, that I was reminded of, listening to these fantastic old um, tracks again, and lots of the demo versions, by the way, lots of, lots of the early versions of things like uh, I Go to Sleep. Really interesting, just, just the piano parts, you know. Um, I was just reminded of how, how you, you always imagined, well, I did when I was a kid, at least this was actually happening in the, in, in the mid-60s, that they all arrived kind of fully formed, these groups. They're just, there they are. The kinks are there, the, the Who and the Beatles, they've got this identity. You, you've kind of forgotten that there's going to be, or didn't know, or didn't think about the backstory. And there's a wonderful bit where um, the kinks have just been on, um, on tour with the, with, with the high numbers, who go on to be the Who. They go off to America, they come back in, and they hear a record called I Can't Explain by a group called The Who on the radio. And they're all going, when did we write this? Did, right, is this one of, I, mean, I, I don't remember us ever recording this. And when they investigate this record, they discover it's by the people who are playing a completely different kind of music when they were supporting them. It's produced by Shel Talmy, who produced the Kings Records. It's produced in their studio. It's produced with the piano player that's used and the session musicians and backing singers. It, it is completely, yeah. it's completely the Kinks package. And Ray says, very aggrieved, he says, not only have they stolen our kind of songs, they've stolen our entire style. And the Who have gone into that slightly psychedelic mod thing where they're wearing kind of rough shirts and things. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating. You know, you just forget that all these people are constantly feeding off each other. Yeah. And you know, somebody's had a little bit of success, somebody's suddenly broken out and... And, and got a bit of, uh, of uh, it got themselves into the charts. And everyone's going, we're going to have to grab a bit of that because that's the way the wind is blowing. But it's probably the case that that quite early on in his career, Ray Davis developed the idea that he hadn't been given a fair shake, and it still holds to this day. I think so. <laughs> you, I I think you feel there's something slightly grudgy. <laughs> and you know, again, listening to the, all the um, early. Stabs at writing ballads, all the demo versions of the songs that we know and love are on there. It's quite honest of him, really. It's like publishing your old diaries or something. It's a, you know, it's, it's a completely transparent uh, exercise. He's saying, "This is me. You can make of it what you want." But uh, you know, you're so impressed, really, uh, the quality of the songs and the diversity of the things and all the different songs he wanted to write. But at those particular times. There was so much pressure on him to produce a certain sound. So because that's what the you know the public were buying. Really. So what's the best Kinks song then? Well, there's I know the answer. To that. Go on. Do you know the answer? Uh, there is only one answer, so it's fine. Well, you're going to say the obvious. Are well, you? we're not having a discussion, David. This is a statement. It's Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Do you want to argue about it? No, well, it's not. Sort of Dave Davis style bust. I was going. 
<laughs> Let me get a crash Let's symbol. Get a fisticuffs. Um, Be on the symbol, please, Doris. <laughs> it's as any fool now. It's Waterloo Sunset. Hey, why, why? Why is it? Why possibly Waterloo? The substandard uh, Waterloo. Because it just Waterloo. makes you. I don't know. It kind of enhances your love of London, I suppose. Really, you know. Sunny afternoon. I feel like it's a place I've never been to. Waterloo Sunset oh, right. is a place I go to all the time. I always thought as a kid that. That Sunday afternoon was an amazing lyric because people tended to like actors only acting sympathetic roles. You know, I want people to like me. And he wrote, Ray wrote some very unsympathetic characters. The, uh, character, yeah, yeah. the character in Sunday afternoon is is, uh, is uh, the girlfriend's gone back to her parents, telling tales of drunkenness and yeah, yeah, yeah. I can remember at the time listening to songs by. Uh, the Beatles, uh, John Lennon had written a song. Uh, I was just a, a wicked guy and I was born with a jealous mind. You know, and there was something really quite sinister you know, about this kind of well, positioning. It, well, it's, it's, I think it's a fair point. Well, it's like Randy Newman all says, you know, that even the bad guys deserve a song, you know. They do, and get many of them. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. Hey.